You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, and we thank you that you've given us opportunity to be intimately related with Him, and that we can live daily in the Spirit. Teach us tonight what it means to walk after the Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please take your Bible and turn to the New Testament book of Galatians, the fifth chapter. Tonight I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 23. Galatians 5, and I'll be reading from the New International Version of the Bible. Galatians 5, 13 through 23. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you ought. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. If the truth were known, some of you have the idea that God is a cosmic killjoy. That God sits in heaven plotting ways to make life miserable for you. Now that is a lie of the devil. Did you hear me? He is not about the business of making life dull. To the contrary, Jesus, by his own admission, came to set the captives free. Jesus came to deliver us from bondage, not to bind us up. Becoming a Christian is not something which results in a cramping, cruel kind of imprisonment for our lives. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and might have it dully. That's what he said, isn't it? What did he say? I have come that they might have life and might have it how? Abundantly. The way the four spiritual laws interprets that, I think it interprets it very well to have a full and meaningful life. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's exactly what Paul is saying in the first part of our text. You, my brothers, were called to be free. As Christians, we were called to freedom. And so few of us really live in freedom in our Christian lives. We are bound up. Our calling to freedom is not a calling to destructive selfishness. Now, let me clear the air immediately. 
Christian freedom is not lawlessness. By the description of Scripture itself, sin is lawlessness. Your freedom as a Christian extends only so far as it does not infringe on another brother's freedom in his or her experience in Christ. Look at the last part of verse 13. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. I do not like the way the New International Version translates this passage of Scripture. I prefer the way which the New American Standard Version translates it. Someone who has that version, please read it for us right now. New American Standard. Okay, Mike. Verse 13, the last part of it. Maybe the whole verse because I, I don't think it's quite ordered like the NIV does it. Go ahead. Okay. I want you to focus on the phrase, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. I believe the translators of the NIV made a crucial error in interpreting the word which is translated properly, flesh, by the word sinful nature. Because I think there is a distinction in the Bible between sinful nature, which is a part of our lives before we received Christ, and the flesh, which was also a part of our lives pr prior to Christ entering our lives, but we maintain the flesh even in this life. I want you to keep that in mind as we'll be talking about the flesh a little bit further in the message this evening. Now I want to focus a moment on the word opportunity as it's translated in the New American Standard Bible. The word opportunity was used to describe a base camp for a military expedition. That's an appropriate word for what Paul is trying to communicate here. As we read in verse 17, there is a sort of internal civil war occurring in the life of every Christian. There is a struggle royal between the flesh, and I might as well go ahead and try to interpret what flesh means. It doesn't mean the stuff that covers up your skeletal system, although it can be used and is used in that fashion some places in the Bible. It does not mean mortal man. It means the element of man which is opposed to God. That part of us which resists God's way and will in our lives is the flesh. And the flesh makes every attempt in your existence to form a bridgehead across which it can walk into the control center of your life. We are not to make provision for the flesh, is what Paul says in the book of Romans, but we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ instead. There were those who were under what I would call the legalism of non-performance in the church at Galatia. That is to say, they took their freedom in Christ as license to do anything they wanted to do. Did you know that there are Christians today who are just like that? They say, let us sin so that grace may abound. Let us live like the devil so God will have an opportunity to extend his grace fully into our lives. And let's consider the characteristics of those sorts of Christians. Maybe you can pinpoint some weaknesses in your own life at this point. They were party to sexual sins. Look at verse 19. The acts of the, and everywhere the word sinful nature, or the phrase sinful nature appears, I'm going to insert the word flesh, that part of us which is against God and His will. The acts of the flesh are obvious. The first word under this category of sexual sins is sexual immorality. It originally meant prostitution. 
It was any kind of natural sexual activity which was wrong from God's point of view. And that can easily be summarized, can it not, by any sexual conduct outside of marriage, be it premarital or extramarital, that kind of activity is displeasing to God and it's under the heading of sexual immorality. The next word is the word impurity. It was used to describe the uncleanness of a sore or wound by the Greeks. It's a word whose opposite was used to describe a house which was perfectly, immaculately kept, a clean house in good condition. It carries with it the idea of any sexual sin that makes a man unfit to come to God. And by the way, any sexual sin does just that, doesn't it? Perhaps there's someone here tonight who is engaged in sexual sin. And it's a roadblock between you and proper relationship with the Lord. You are using your freedom in Christ to justify your sin in this way. And look at the next word, debauchery. How many of you have used that word in your vocabulary lately? <laughs> That's not one that we throw around very lightly, is it? You know what debauchery means? It's the kind of attitude that is sitting on ready for any kind of sexual pleasure. It's the attitude which expresses itself in out in the open breaches of public decency. It's a word which Josephus, the Jewish historian, used to describe Jezebel. If you know anything about her, you know, you know that she was out in the open with her sexuality, flaunting her own sin before everyone. So one category of sin under those who are free in Christ to lawlessness is the sexual sins. Now, there are others, religious sins. And let's look, there are a couple of words here that have relevance to us. Idolatry, and of course idolatry is worshiping something that man has made. Do you know that greed is idolatry according to the book of Colossians? And if you and I are greedy, we are idolatrous. When we think of idolatry, we tend to laugh about it because we say there's nothing in us that worships any idol made by man's hands, any false god. But you don't have to look too far to discover that all of us are tempted in the area of materialism. The next word is witchcraft. Listen to this word in the language of the New Testament and see if you don't hear a modern-day word in this word, pharmakeia. Does anyone hear a word in that? Let's hear from you. Pharmakeia. Pharmacy, pharmacology. This word witchcraft really literally means the use of drugs. Witchcraft was widespread in the New Testament world. There were witches, sorcerers, practicers of magic in Galatia and practically throughout all the known world at this time. And in association with the practice of witchcraft, drugs were always used. I was talking to uh, the city engineer in our city here recently, and he was telling me how he went out with a salesman from a company in Fort Worth who was trying to sell him on a certain kind of conduit. It was a huge piece of uh, concrete conduit that went underground, and they were walking. They, it was so big that they could stand up and they could walk down through this conduit. And they came to what was a manhole above, and in the cover, the lid of that manhole had fallen down so that light was pouring down through the hole. And he said what he saw there 
appalled. It shocked him. He saw praise Satan written on the walls of this conduit. He saw symbols that were indicative of worshiping the devil, the pentagram and other symbols. Do you realize that there are Satan worshipers right here in Arlington? Do you know that our kids could probably, some of them could stand up and testify to that fact? And there is a relationship between the use of drugs and this religious sin of witchcraft. Beware, young people, and older people, too. It is a tool of the devil used to draw us away from the Lord. There's a lot more that could be said at that point, but let's go on because we don't have all that much time. Let's look at the social sins, and we may be exempt from the sexual sins and from the religious sins, but what about the social sins which Paul talks about here? In order to really understand what was going on in the church at Galatia, we need to read verse 15 before we go further in the list later on in this chapter. Let's read verse 15. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Now Paul obviously didn't mean that they were literally taking chunks out of each other with their teeth. But the word biting is used normally for animals or especially snakes. It was also used for dogs. And the word devouring is used to describe a dog's just gulping food. Have you ever fed a dog a, a, just a delightful piece of meat? Sometimes we've had pieces of meat left over or some nice piece of food and I've given it to my dog and if it were I, what I would do with that food, I would savor it. You know, I'd chew it up, but what does a dog normally do? Just gulps it right down. Seems like a total waste of that food. There were scavenger dogs in New Testament times and they were the only way of getting rid of garbage in the towns of the New Testament time. And this is what Paul had in mind and his readers understood what he was talking about and he said that you are treating each other like this, you are devouring each other, you are going to destroy each other. The idea is consuming by fire, total annihilation. The social sins that we're going to read about in just a moment are sins which lead to the total wiping out of the body of Christ. And we need to recognize the fact that we are given, all of us, to biting and devouring each other. Let's look at these verses of Scripture. Beginning in the middle of verse 20, hatred simply hostility toward others of any kind. Consider the next word, discord. It originally meant a rivalry for prizes that ended in quarreling. Therefore, any kind of dissension falls under the heading of discord. Jealousy. Jealousy is envy for what belongs to another. Do you find yourself fitting into any of these categories? The next word is fits of rage. This is the kind of person who just erupts like a volcano and spills out over everybody in a fit of rage, just has a temper tantrum. That's the kind of attitude that is unacceptable from God's point of view. The next word is selfish ambition. It was originally used to describe the work of a hired hand, suggesting the pay that the hired hand received for doing a job. And then it came to be used of a politician who was canvassing for office. The idea of being motivated only for what can accrue to your account. Then the next word is dissensions. Literally, it means a standing apart. The next word is factions, cliques. Are there any cliques in our church? It originally meant a group of people following a certain school of thought. There's no place 
for cliquishness in the body of Christ. Certainly there will be people with whom you are closely related, more closely than others. Even Jesus had those to whom he was more closely related. John was one. Peter and James were also. But he loved everyone equally. He did not stand off from other people. And then the last word is envy. And what that means basically is grief at another person's good fortune. See if you fit in any of those social sins. And then the final category is summarized in the last word, drunkenness. I think that speaks for itself. The word orgies is connected with the worship of pagan gods. And when these pagans would get drunk, they would go to their temple and they would sing praises and dance unto their pagan gods. Certainly, our being called to freedom is not to a destructive selfishness, but more positively, our being called to freedom is a calling to constructive service. Look at the last part of verse 13. Serve one another in love. That's the alternative. Render slave service to is what Paul was saying. That should be the attitude of our relating to each other. We are to serve each other as Christ demonstrated how we're to serve. The summation of man's duty to man is given in the next verse. Let's look at verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to turn with me back two books to 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. For one more look at how our so-called freedom in Christ can lead to the destruction of other people. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 13. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. In other words, it didn't matter what the New Testament church at Corinth ate as far as it creating a spiritual problem for them so long as their eating of it did not cause a problem for those weaker in their faith who still believed in the idols in the sense that there were false spirits behind them. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Let's just stop there. We could read the rest of the chapter. But what you and I need to understand is that our freedom in Christ to do what we feel perfectly okay in doing must never be a source of stumbling in another brother's life. Because if it does become that, we are part of their sin. We lead them to sin in their stumbling if we practice something that is wrong in their thinking. It's, they can't do it by faith. Now, this constructive service is made possible by living in the Spirit. This is tremendous. Look at verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit or in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, there are certain things that I would like to say, three to be exact, about life in the Spirit. I want you to catch these. The first is this. Life in the Spirit is characterized by conflict. Did you get that? Life in the Spirit is not a conflict-free kind of life. That's the impression that is left 
by so many preachers and teachers today. If you get right with God, if you're filled with the Spirit, your life will be free from conflict. Hardly. Look at verse 17. For the sinful nature of the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Do you ever feel that going on in your life? It's what Robert Browning said when he says, God stoops o'er his heart, speaking of the man who has this conflict raging in his heart, Satan looks up beneath his feet and both tug. It reminds me of what I read about an Indian Christian. He grew up and lived all of his life on a Navajo reservation in northern Arizona. He became a Christian late in life, and a missionary asked him how it went in his spiritual life. And he said, it's as though there are two dogs in my life, and one is evil and one is good, and they are pulling and fighting against each other. And the missionary asked him, at this point, which dog is winning? He said, let me answer your question this way. The dog which I feed the most is the one which wins. Whether he fed to the Spirit, sowed to the Spirit, or sowed to the flesh, whether he lived in obedience to Christ, or whether he did his own thing, determined how victorious that man was. It's true in our lives, too. Someone has said, and I like it, that the only place there isn't conflict is a graveyard. If you're alive spiritually, you can count on conflict in your life. It's a part of it. The promise from God is not that we will not feel, but that we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh if we will depend upon His Spirit in our lives. The tug will be there. So there's nothing uncommon about having this struggle in your spiritual life. Don't feel like that you're wrong with God because of the struggle. The Spirit does not take us out of the fight, but He equips us with His sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to do the battle. That he's called us to. Another characteristic of life in the Spirit is that it is characterized by conquest. And this conquest comes not by our exercising our determination, gritting our teeth, and fighting the desires of the flesh. It comes by dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God, by trusting Him and giving Him control, yielding to His control in our life. This conquest comes by walking by the Spirit, which simply means, I believe, life empowered by the Spirit, a habitual, constant walking after the ways of God, doing what you read in Scripture that God wants you to do, having the courage to follow the Lord no matter where that goes, where that may lead you. And life in the Spirit finally is characterized by fruit. Look at verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Love means the sacrifice of self in the service of others. Is that true of your life? Joy, which does not depend on circumstances. Too many Christians are looking for happiness. You'll never find it if you're looking for it. You'll find joy if you'll follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your life. Peace. Peace is not merely the absence of struggle, but peace is the best which life has to offer you. It's the kind of life that comes when you let the Spirit of God control your life. Kindness. This is inner goodness. And the word goodness means the outward demonstration of kindness, the inner goodness. Faithfulness speaks for itself. Gentleness. It means teachability. It suggests submission to God. 
It's coming under the control of God's Spirit, willingness to let Him control. And then self-control, Plato said in describing this word, it means self-mastery, being in control of your life and yourself. Notice that when Paul talks about what is typical of a Spirit-filled Christian, he does not talk about the works of the Spirit, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. When I think of work, I think of straining and sweating and toiling. And there certainly is a place for work in the Christian life. But fruit convey, conveys a totally different image to me, and it should to you. It conveys the idea of beauty and quietness and a slow, unfolding life. And that's typical of the Spirit-filled Christian Christian who has these manifestations in her life or his life. God is glorified by fruit that comes out of a man's life. Now when we work our own fruit up, and by the way, the flesh can produce fruit just like the spirit can. It's a counterfeit kind of fruit. Then man gets the glory. Fruit is for consumption and not display. The fruit of the spirit is not for us to show off how spiritual we are, but it's, it's to be used to help others in their spiritual growth. I want to read a lengthy quote from Michael Green at this point. Listen to it carefully. The day we become Christians, the spirit of the risen Christ is planted in our garden. It has, con has to contend with lots of weeds which always hinder, sometimes threaten completely to stifle its growth. The climate is often cold and the neglect to which the plant is subjected is something awful. But gradually, over the years, the tender sapling grows into a fruitful tree, and people come and refresh themselves with luscious fruit, even though there are still plenty of nettles around its base. That's true of a spirit-filled Christian. Your life will be a life that others will rally around. Do you know why? It's because you have the life of Jesus' spirit in you. And just as people were drawn to Jesus, so they will be drawn to Jesus in you, those traits in your life. And the last thing regarding this fruit is that fruit provides seed for more fruit. Have you ever thought about that? There are seeds in every piece of fruit. And if you will be a person who walks after the Spirit of God in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, then you will be a person from whose life other fruit will be born. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to walk in the Spirit. I pray that you would open our eyes to the need and then the how-to of walking after you. Help us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ in all we do. In his name I pray. Amen.